Okay, so um, secondly, thirdly, there are obviously a lot fewer of you here today than um, last week. I think some people had longish dark nights of the soul. Um, here is um, 37 copies. There's a reason I'm telling you this. 37 copies of a paragraph from Leonardo da Vinci that we'll look at today. Um, what will happen is you will each take one, and then the number of copies that are left over, 37 minus the number of copies that are left over, will tell me what? The number of how many people dropped? Um, <laughs> no, how many people are here, from which I can work out how many people dropped, or at least are not here. Are there? Who's new? Yeah. You're. Oh, <laughs> are you? Did you sign up? Uh, I haven't are you? signed up yet because I, I have scheduling conflicts, so I'm just jumping so far. Okay. Well, um, you may. It. it <laughs> your life may be made easier after a few minutes. Um, so, one basic idea that we're going to be looking at a little bit, um, not so much today, but in general is the idea of what counting is. Um, we, were, we talked a little bit about counting numbers in the first class. And counting may seem a very obvious thing to do, since it's one of those very, very early things that we learn how to do, is to count. Um, but we're going to break down counting um, in this class a little bit. The, one of the things that I told you to pay, that we would talk about, that we'd be paying some attention about to um, in the course of this course, was the idea of one-to-one -one correspondence. And um, we're doing that a little bit right now. If each of you takes one copy of the paragraph from Leonardo, then the number of copies out there and the number of people out there should be the same. Um, the leftovers. Therefore, I can look at the leftover copies um, and by telling the number of, uh, by knowing how many copies have been distributed, I will therefore know how many people are here. That's assuming that each of you takes one and only one copy, but that's what one to one correspondence would be. Um, thank you. So, according to my calculations, there are a bunch of you here. The class is not, is not empty. It's not an empty set. So one-to-one -one correspondence, is that something that people, that's a phrase you've heard before. Um, one of those things where um, probably it seemed like completely obvious what it meant and who cares. Um, one of those math is often either absurdly obvious or absurdly unobvious, but it's never just right. Um, there's no Goldilocks of um, mathematics. But um, so this may be one of the absurdly obvious things, but it's going to become more interesting when we talk about one-to-one -one correspondence in infinite sets. Um, that's why it becomes, that's where it becomes a really interesting topic. Um, but we won't start with that, and we may not get to that today. But um, so you guys have read these two stories by Borges. What did you think? Trippy. Tricky? Trick Trippy. Trippy. Um, trippy and tricky, maybe. Um, trippy, for those of you do, who don't know, is a kind of word from the 70s and 80s. Um, or from California, which is another way of saying the 70s and 80s. <laughs> yeah. um, from the Bay Area? The Bay Area. Yeah, from like Haight and Ashbury, maybe? No. no. From Palo Alto. 
from Palo Alto. Well, that's trippy in another way. Yeah. That's a trickier version of trippy. Okay. Um, a trippier version of tricky. Yeah. Um, Luca, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, also, uh, both stories talked about um, either a sphere or a circle that its center was everywhere mm -hmm. and the circumference was... <coughs> Yeah, so um, they, um, that's an old mystical theological idea, a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. It's one way of attempting to describe God um, in um, some theological um, context. Actually, in Western philosophy, the, these come from um, certain esoteric Western traditions, but I think there's similar things in Eastern philosophy as well. Um, can you make sense of that? A circle whose center is everywhere? No sense at all? Yeah. It reminds me a lot of um, some of the sort of cosmological theories about the universe. Say more. In that um, when we look out into the night sky, we see all of the galaxies around us receding away from us in, in at this essentially the same speed in, in every direction. So it looks like... Well, the, the same speed depending on how far away they are. Yeah. The spin, yeah. The, the same ratio of velocity of recession or speed of recession um, to distance from us. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's what I was saying. Yeah, I could tell. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and so it, it looks like we, we, we would, it would make sense initially, to, one would think, to say, oh, we must therefore be the center of the universe. But it's, it, it seems like this is what you would observe if you were at any one of these galaxies because the entirety of the universe is just sort of inflating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the universe is expanding. Inflation is actually slightly different, but the universe is expanding. It's not even slightly different, it's different. The universe is expanding, um, and if we look around, every part of the universe seems to be receding from us at the same um, rate of speed. Um, which makes it feel as though we're in the center of the universe. Um, the way this is often explained in astronomy is to think of raisin bread that is rising as it's being baked, and each galaxy is like a raisin in the raisin bread, and as the, as, yeah, as, as, the, as the bread expands, all the raisins are separating from each other. But each raisin, any raisin could say, um, I am the center of the raisin bread to which another raisin would say, oh my god, a talking raisin. Uh, Amanda. But also when you think about the idea of the circle, it's how you think about it. You know, if you're thinking about it as, uh, as a two-dimensional, like, pleasure circle on a piece of paper, no, you look at that, there's, there's one definite point, and you really, from no matter what you look at that, it, it, it's two-dimensional. But mm -hmm. more like a sphere where it's, you know, I, I guess kind of, something that you see through that is round and completely three-dimensional from wherever you look at it and however you rotate it, the, the center moves depending on your perception. Okay, yeah. Um, I think that makes sense. That is that if you imagine um, where you are on the surface of a sphere, you would be the center of all the circles that would constitute the surface of the sphere that you could draw concentrically around you. But that would be true of anyone else on the surface of the sphere also. So one thing that this is um, the sort of flatland idea, which is that if you, if you bump up one dimension, 
um, you can see yourself at at not at that bumped up dimension, but a dimension below that um, as the center of where you are. So there are ways that thought about different dimensions, four dimensions, and there's actually a reason to bring in a fourth dimension at this point, um, might have that effect. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I think by the nature of what we're talking about, the circle with the center that's all over the place, um, you can't really wrap your head around it, but you can kind of try to experience it and, and um, and play with it, the mm -hmm. idea. But, but I think the point is that it's you can't logically have a grasp grasp of that shape because the shape is constantly changing and, and has no true form. Okay, um, good. Yeah. Um, I think it was referenced in the um, Library of Babel. Um, if I'm saying that right, uh, that the books have no beginning or end, and. I guess relating that to the circle, if there's no beginning or end there, wherever the middle is could just be completely arbitrary because there are no two points to compare it to. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it could all be arbitrary. Um, it would still feel like you could go out in the same direction in any direction, go out the same distance in any direction, but from any arbitrary point. Yeah. What's your name, by the way? Shota. Shota. Yeah, but if a circle has no beginning and no end, then it's not a circle, right? So if it has no circumference and if it has like centers all over the place, then there is no circle that is infinity, or there is the set of circles. So one circle, well, mathematically, can never have several like centers because it's the center of the point. Like if you take like several, if you take a sphere, then the sphere would be a set of circles because mm -hmm. a sphere is like tridimensional. So, yeah. Like, it couldn't be a circle. So we're either talking about like several circles, a set of circles, or nothing at all, because in that case we're talking about something else. Okay, well, so what, what's happening here is that Borges is quoting, most of what he quotes is real, not all of it, but most of what he quotes is real. Um, and what he's quoting is something that has been at least attractive as um, something to try to think or to think about. Um, to various kinds of philosophically and theologically oriented writers. But here's a way to start thinking about the, about the issue. First of all, there's the question, why would you see, and you'll see this um, among the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, what would make you think of the universe as spherical or circular? Um, that's an argument that pre-Socratic philosophers are going to make, that the universe is a sphere. Um, we'll look at that when we look at early Greek philosophy. Um, but there does seem to be a certain intuitive appeal to the idea of a spherical universe, if the universe has boundaries at all. Um, the intuitive appeal, do you want to say what the intuitive appeal is? Okay, so if it originated in one point, it expands from that point. What were you going to say? Mm -hmm. And then if you've been expanding at like a ratio that's like obviously everything's slowing down, but um, that it's all everything is moving at the same speed away, that wouldn't that necessarily make a sphere? 
Okay, yeah, so that's the modern universe you're talking about. But the universe from 2,500 years ago or 2,600 years ago, that is the universe of the pre-Socratic philosophers, as they're called, the philosophers who were doing philosophy before Socrates um, came on the scene, Socrates being pretty much the founder of Western philosophy. They also had an idea, without the idea of an expanding universe or modern physics, um, they also had an idea that the universe was, or the world, um, was probably um, spherical. Luca. Um, well, I was just thinking that, uh, I mean, okay, to start off, you know it's obviously three-dimensional, so mm -hmm. it's not some flat thing. But then also, I mean, most other shapes, I think of other common, common shapes, the sphere is kind of the most maybe natural. Yeah. Where, you know, if you have a box, it, it just seems like it wouldn't logically make sense. Yeah, if you have a box, you built that. Man-made. Yeah. Would be in the shape of a box. And same thing with, you know, pyramids or anything else. So I think a sphere... So in a sense, what you could say, and I think you are saying, is that if you had a precise figure or precise um, geometrical um, um, object representing... That would, sorry? that would help people that believe in the theological thought. Precise. Yeah, and it wouldn't be precise, but let's say you wanted to have a precise figure of um, inchoate and indeterminate shape, then the closest precise figure you could have for that would be a sphere. Um, you would want to say it's a cloud, but you wouldn't want to say it's got any boundaries. But if you basically have the universe going off forever in all directions, in every direction, um, just going off forever, the idea that it's that it's you're no closer to one edge than to another, gives you a kind of possibly incoherent but nevertheless sense of an infinite sphere, of a sphere, therefore, that goes on forever, that's infinite, um, but that because it doesn't have boundaries or shapes, because it doesn't have boundaries, doesn't have a shape, um, and therefore every point is like every other point at the edge of the sphere, infinitely far away non-existent if you want because it's infinitely far away. But spherical just feels like a, a good, good precise name for mishmash. And that's one reason, they actually have stronger reasons for this, but it's one reason that the pre-Socratics um, thought of the universe as spherical. But let's go back to um, our own experience. One of the things to, I hope that you understood from Borges, um, let's say from the Library of, of Babel, is that um, he's describing somewhat allegorically, it's by no means all that he's doing or the most interesting thing that he's doing, um, but he's describing to some extent allegorically something like the way the elements work. Um, if you know what elementary school is, um, elementary school is where you learn the elements of the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. And in particular, elements means not in science, but in education. Elements means the letters that you learn to put words together. So the idea of talking about the periodic table of elements and the idea of talking about um, the elements of reading or the elements of writing um, is that what you're given are things that are the most basic units in the case of the periodic table of elements, what's the first unit? 
hydrogen. Um, second? Okay, good. That's as far as you need to go. Um, in the case of the elements of reading and writing, what's the first unit? A. And the second? B. B. That's, you don't have to go any farther. It gets hard um, <laughs> after that. Um, and the idea is that you have a finite number of letters. In Borges's library, you have 22 letters and three other symbols. Those make up the alphabet. In the um, in our alphabet, in the American and English alphabet, in the Roman alphabet, more or less, you have 26 letters plus a bunch of other symbols. Um, in the periodic table, um, at least in 1941, when Borges was writing the Library of Babel, you had, what, around 90 elements, something like that, in 1941. Um, in the genetic code, how many elements do you have? Four. Um, at least for DNA, if you add RNA, there's a fifth. Um, so all of those things, you have basic building blocks. That's what an, el an element means. It's the most basic building block. And it's like a Lego piece. And by fitting those things together, you can fit them together in a vast number of different ways. And fitting th them together in that vast number of different ways gives you in our universe, it gives you the universe. All the fitting together of the elements gives you all the matter, all the stuff that we have in our universe. Yeah? Yeah, that's not, the, it, um, I don't think that's its definition. I think it's a set of points on a plane equidistant from a, from a single point. Um, but then you can show that a polygon with an infinite number of sides would be circular. Um, so yeah, that Euclid's book is called The Elements, and what he's talking about are the elements of geometry, the things that you put together, five axioms and some rules uh, or postulates and some rules of inference will give you Euclidean geometry. Um, so the idea then is that in the Library of Babel, you have the librarian who is simply means the person who lives in um, a set of these chambers in the universe, um, who is confronted with the um, permutations of the elements of that universe. And those permutations form the structure of that universe, or form all the books within the universe, form everything within it. To that extent, this completely trippy, tricky, fantastic universe nevertheless bears a relationship to ours. It also um, really bears a disanalogy to ours, which is that every book is different from every other book. That is, no two books are alike in the Library of Babel, whereas you wouldn't say that, for example, about um, two um, separate liters of um, pure hydrogen gas. Um, they would be alike, more or less alike. Um, alike if you were trying to 
um, draw the parallels between the Library of Babel and our universe. But the basic thing that Borges, um, the basic parallel that Borges is making is that this weird, strange universe is in a lot of ways just a way of describing in a parable, in a fable, in um, an unexpected way, something like what our universe would look like. Borges didn't know about the genetic code. The story was written in 1941, but he is thinking in terms of codes, pure and simple, in ways that lots of people are thinking about codes in the first half of the 20th century, when Watson and Crick and Rosamund Franklin um, did the work that allowed them to figure out the structure of DNA um, and how the genetic code worked. It was partly because thinking about coding was something that a lot of people were doing. Not knowing the genetic code, you could nevertheless see um, maybe a better parallel to, what, to the books in Borges' library and our world by saying that every person, except for identical twins, um, every person has a different genetic code. Um, but there are only a finite number of genetic codes. Um, that is, if you took all the base pairs um, and you went through every permutation, every combination of base pairs that you could have, um, eventually you would run out of such permutations and combinations, um, and people would repeat. You would have more, you would have exact doubles. People would have exact doubles. So the books in Borges's universe are finite, um, tremendously large number, but a finite number just as the number of possible human beings or the number of possible DNA-based organisms um, that can differ from each other is finite. You can't have, you know, people say no two people are alike, no two snowflakes are alike. Um, that's almost certainly true, but it's not a logical, it's not logically um, definite, valid. Um, Valid means always true in logic. Um, and the reason is that there are only a finite number of different combinations that you can have. In the same way in the Library of Babel, there are only a finite number of different books. Did anyone figure out how many different books you could have? Did anyone think about figuring it out? You thought about it and then said, nah. I thought it was interesting that he, I thought about it in the context that he did <coughs> put that down. That he listed all these other really specific numbers, but then mm -hmm didn't capture the, the huge size of that, of that number. Yeah, so it is a very huge number. Luca? I was going to say, I mean, couldn't we figure it out mathematically yeah. pretty easily? Because yes. Because there's 22 possible... 25. Oh, right, 25. And then I don't remember how many characters there were per page. Or that 80, kind of 80 characters per line. Um, on average, that's because they're kerned. Um, but let's just say 80 characters per line. Um, 25 possibilities for each character, 40 lines per page, and 410 pages per book. So, how many different books? You can write in notation. So, if you have, um, a, you have two coins, 
How many different combinations can you flip those two coins? Does anyone know? Four. Four. You can get heads, 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 tails, tails, heads, and tails, tails. Three coins. Really? I want to gamble with you guys. Eight. You mean in the Library of Babel? Um, 25 different characters, um, 80 characters per line, 40 lines per page, 410 pages per book. So the number, the number of possible permutations would be, <clears throat> would be 25 to the... 80 times 40 times 410? Yes. Yeah. So um, if you put it in, um, in exponential notation, 25 to the 80 times 40 times 410. Because each character in 80 times 40 times 4, of 80 times 40 times 410 possible characters, there are 25 different possibilities for each character. So in the same way you can go heads, 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 tails, tails, heads, and tails, tails, you can go A followed by 25 times 40, I mean by 80 times 40 times 410 minus 1 A's, B followed by 80 times um, 40 times 410 minus 1 A's, C followed by that many, etc. Um, really uncrackable passwords. Um, Sorry? Can you repeat the, the formula again? 25. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All right, do you, uh, is it because the formula, do you understand the principle of the formula? Yeah. So it's just like if you want to know how many ways you can, you can um, flip n coins, it's 2 to the nth because there are two possibilities for each coin. Um, in this case, it's going to be 25 to the nth is the number of different ways that you can um, have 25, um, that, that a 25-sided die can roll um, if you roll it n times. So it's 25 is the number of different possibilities in each place in the book. And then the exponent you bring it to, the n, is 80 because there are, 80 line, there are 80 letters in each line, times 40 lines per page, so there are um, 32,000 characters per page. Is that right? 3,200 characters per page. Um, so 80 times 40 is 3,200 characters per page, times 410 pages. Um, so it's about a million to a little bit over 1.2 million characters per book. Um, this book probably has about 1.2 million characters in it. When I was a kid, there was a book, yeah, something like that. When I was a kid, there was a book that was simply called One Million Dots. Has anyone seen that? Um, it was just a, it was pretty easy to print. It was just a million dots, um, page after page after page of dots. So there were a million of them. Um, let's say there were, um, I don't know, 2,000 per page. Um, so it was uh, 500 pages. Um, so a million dots, but they would, they would sometimes circle some dot to say, you know, um, population of Providence, Rhode Island, somewhere around the um, 200,000th dot, um, or whatever. Um, so some of those dots were interesting, but basically it's just a whole, whole, whole bunch of dots. 
Um, there are a whole, whole, whole bunch of letters in these books made of gibberish, about 1.2 million letters per 410 page book. Each of those letters has 25 different things that it could be, while all the others stay the same, so it's 25 to that 1.2 million. Anyone know roughly how many atoms in the universe? 10 to the thousandth, more or less? Sorry? No clue. No clue? Um, it's about, if I recall correctly, it's about 10 to the 70th. So the number of atoms in the universe is about 10 to the 70th. Um, so the number of books in the Library of Babel is 25 to the 1.2 millionth, which makes it the case that if our entire universe were shrunk to the size of an atom and put into a universe the size of our universe and that entire universe were shrunk to the size of an atom and put in another universe the size of that universe and that entire universe and if you did this a whole lot it would still be sorry yes and that elephant would still be crushed by the library of babel um, because the Library of Babel would be so much, so inconceivably bigger than the universe could be. That's why the writer of the Library of Babel is tempted sometimes to call it infinite, even though it is a finite number. And a finite number we could write fairly easily in our notation, 10 to the 80th, 10 to the 80 times 4, well, 10 to the 1.2 million. Um, we can write it easily, but this, I mean, 25 to, yes, thank you, 25 um, to the 1.2 million. Um, so we can write it fairly easily, but it's um, absurdly larger than our own universe would be. Um, so here's a, yeah. So by that logic, is our universe well, um, not by that logic, by the claim that that's how many atoms there are in the universe, which is, a, which is an empirical claim that physicists make. Um, that's a claim that's, that, that cosmologists make by looking at the history and the future of the universe. Um, there's no reason um, from a priori principles to think that, that's, that there's a limited number of atoms in the universe. That's a claim of modern physics. Um, and a claim that Borges writing this story wouldn't have known yet. Um, that's a big library. It's no wonder that people in that library are filled with despair. Um, but there are ways, if you think about it, of making the library smaller. Micro SD card? No. That could work, but there's, there's another way of doing it. So let's say every book is 410 pages long. Um, why was it pointless, by the way, for people to try to destroy books? What, um, what did that, why didn't that work out? There were, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were permutations or, or different copies of the book that differed by one letter, or yeah. some that differed by two letters, and the meaning would not change, but they'd be concretely different. Yeah, so if you had, um, if you destroyed a book, there would be another 1.2 million books that would be like that book with, with a, a single typo in each of them. Um, in other words, almost indistinguishable, um, incredibly close to being indistinguishable from the destroyed book. Amanda? Yeah. Um, someone else? Yeah. But if you're 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's not, the narrator of the Library of Babel is someone who's in despair and who um, can't quite be taken at his word um, in his analysis. He can almost be, but not quite. So when he says the library is infinite, he actually knows it isn't. Um, he then comes up with the idea that, that, there, that, it's, um, that there's periodicity. That is, if you got to the very end of the library, it would just start over again. And that would be um, having your center everywhere and your circumference nowhere. Um, but he's not, a, he's not completely precise in his language. But he, says, but he says that. He admits it. He says the difference would be so trivial. And then he uses the word infinitesimal, which it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be infinitesimal, which means one over infinity. But it would be so tiny as to seem infinitesimal. Um, the difference that it would, that it makes to destroy one book, but you're right. It wouldn't. There would be some imperfection there. Every time a book is destroyed, um, that's a book that's lost. But there's a way to save us here, which is let's say that a book is destroyed, um, and now we have another book which differs only in one comma. Let's say um, in the last page of the book. What we could find is a third book which would tell us that the last page of this second book, which is not quite a facsimile of the first book, needed one correction. And there is a book in the library would say, find that second book is exactly identical to the first book, except on page 410, where there's a comma in the fourth line, that should be a period. And then we could correct it. So the library has error correcting mechanisms because it has instructions for how to do everything There's in no that book. No, but it is true. We just don't know which one is true. But so what? We didn't know that to begin with. Yeah. What about the information paradox? That I think it was Stephen Hawking who came up with it that if something falls into a black hole, the information is permanently destroyed. And even if you understand what to do to rebuild it atom by atom, you wouldn't be able to. Yeah, but that again, that's um, and there's new physics that, that that theorizes that the information isn't destroyed, that it would be saved on the surface of the black hole. Well, that's actually Hawking, who that said black Hawking. holes do have hair. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there, it used to be thought, as as physicists put it, that a black hole has no hair. He saved the black hole problem, right? That was how he like fixed. That's it. how he solved it. Yeah. yeah, because black holes do have hair, but we really don't need to go into that now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say that in response to, you know, saying that there's a book that will correct it, there's also a book that will say that comma on page 410 of that second book should absolutely stay there and is perfect just the way it is. Yeah. So, I mean, you can find books that say all different Yes, yeah. You have the true catalog of the library. You have false catalogs of the library. You have refutations of the true catalog of the library. It's all there. It's in there. Yeah. Right. So yeah. how do you know which one is You don't important? know, but... But there's, do, as much of a, uh, there's as much of a chance that you get the truth. Well, the chances are so small either way. The probability of getting the book you're looking for is so small that there's as much of a chance you get with something you're looking for that... The point is that whatever that book said, 
the remaining books of the library still say the same thing. You can still find the same thing said. Maybe it will take a little more effort or an insane amount of more effort to find the same thing being said, but you can find the exact same thing being said with the books that remain. Um, and whatever it said, whether it's true or false, you can find the same thing being said in the books that remain. One thing that a book might say, for example, is they have destroyed a copy of this book. And that might be a lie. Maybe they didn't. Um, one book will certainly claim that another book has been destroyed that hasn't been destroyed. Because everything that we can say, the whole transcript of this class, can be found in the Library of Babel. Nothing you're saying isn't already in a book, in many books. Our syllabus in, is probably in the middle of the Yeah. Book. In most of them, not ascribed to you, but ascribed to other people in the class. So if you got a book in the Library of Babel which had a transcript of this class, you would be outraged because almost certainly the smartest thing you said would be put in someone else's mouth. Um, but what can you do? Yeah. I don't understand how there's a, fi a, a finite number of books. Because if there's books correcting books, there should be books correcting those books, yeah. correcting those, which would be an infinite amount of books. So how can there be a finite number of books? No, they circle. So you can say it goes into a loop eventually? Yeah, it has to because there are only a finite number of possible yeah. permutations, possible sequences of letters. So um, because there's only a finite number of possible sequences of letters, book A says book B is wrong on page three of book A, it says book B has a mistake on page 14. On page 14 of book B, it says book C has a mistake on page six. And on page six of book C, it says book A has a mistake on page three. So it circles around where the mistake is. They could all be mistakes. At least one what of them is. What is a mistake in that context? Saying, yeah, saying so, says something false about another book. But Let's say. The element of truth is lost when it when within the library. Yeah, but it nevertheless the claim of truth is made, because you will find books that say what follows is the truth. No matter what anyone tells you about this library, what follows is the truth. And that's the element of despair is that yeah. people take the truth claimed in the books, but they need to realize that 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 means nothing. Exactly. The permutation of the, the given library. Exactly. Yeah, Amanda. Um, so that's like. In the example that he puts forth in, in the story of um, you know the ultimate book A that certain a certain subset of, of people are looking for that to find this book though you need to find book B that will give you information on book A right but to find book B you need book C and so on and so forth and it just keeps going on and on. Yeah, and you can think of code books work this way also. That is that there is that book which is um, MCV repeated over and over again for the entire book. Um, but there could be a code book which says um, the letter M in the first position of a book um, stands for T. The letter C in the second position of a book stands for O. The letter V in the third position of a book stands for blank. The letter M in the fourth position of a book stands for B. The letter C in the fifth position of a book stands for E. The letter V in the seventh position of a book stands for a space again. The letter 
what are we up to? Seven, so we're up to C again. The letter C in the eighth position of a book stands for O. And this would have to be a multi-volume book in order to get you the entire book because each time you're getting the letter, let's say you're getting 20 letters to decode each letter. So a 20-volume book could decode a 20-volume work. The, the volumes would be scattered all over the library. But a 20-volume work could decode the book MCV, MCV, MCV. And if you read the code right, you would get to be or not to be. That is the question as the first line of MCV, 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 etc. Um, there is a code book that would decode it that way. There's another 20-volume code book in the library that would decode it as, for a long time, I used to go to bed early. There's another 20-volume code book in the library that would decode it at the first line as saying, if you find the right 20-volume code book in the library, you will be able to decode this book. But if this is how it's being decoded, you haven't found the right book. See, but um, how do you know the volumes? Each you volume don't. Doesn't belong to a different set. You don't. Because if, if why, yeah. why isn't the second volume, the second book of the the 20-volume, whatever? You don't know any of that. However, they're all the true story. This is something that you may have. Uh, I hope you noticed was a um, a point of contact between both stories. The true story of your own death is written in the Library of Babel. Um, somewhere in that library is the true story of your own death. Um, just as Borges, the narrator of what story? The Aleph. We find out his name is Borges. Just as Borges, the narrator of the Aleph, one of the things that he sees in the Aleph is what? Your face. He saw your face in the olive, among many, many other things. That's one of the things he saw. Because he saw everything. And your face is one of those things that if we talk about everything, we're talking about. So all of those things are there. Yeah? What I see now, though, after accepting that the library is, it's like the temptation of the library is to find truth in it, that that's the despair, is that there is truth in it somewhere, but it that amongst all the randomness, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Is that you just have an existential crisis. Yeah. That you have, you have no meaning and claimed meaning, and it's up to the person to... So the, the, the people in despair in the library are just people within existential crisis that haven't decided that the meaning they make is the meaning for themselves. Which is another allegory of our world. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, it could be. <laughs> we'll have to find out. Yes, the answer is, it's one of the things we're going to prove, that for every, do people know what a rational number is? Anyone not? A rational number is one that if you explain things to it in a careful and valid way, it will say, my goodness, you are right. Um, does every, everyone does know what a rational number is? A rational number is a number in, in case you're just lying. A rational number is a number that you can write as a ratio, that is, as one whole number um, brought into relation with another. So a rational number, um, they're invisible. A rational number can be written A over B. Um, take any two lengths 
the length of this tetra pack and the length of this piece of chalk. And let's say this is five inches long and this is um, an inch and a half long. We can write it as 10 over 3. Um, and that is showing the ratio of the length of the tetra pack to the length of the piece of chalk. Um, for every rational number in the universe, and we use rational numbers all the time when we use money, for example. A quarter is a quarter of a dollar. Um, a um, cent is one one-hundredth, hence the word cent, um, Latin for a hundred, of a dollar. Um, for all rational numbers, every rational number, there are an infinite number of irrational numbers. If you were to get a number line and throw a dart at it with a single point at its tip, the odds that that dart would hit a rational number would be zero because there are an infinite number of irrationals for every rational. That's one of the things that Contour proved, and that's something that's that we will get to. Sorry? <laughs> Wait, say it louder. What if it just happens to hit the one? They can't because any point that that thing oh, touches okay. is next to yeah, infinite yeah. amounts yeah. of points that are irrational. Yeah. Um, this is one of the ways, I, I want to see, we're going to get back to worries in a second, but one of the ways to think about um, the weirdness of infinity is it's not so hard when you're told, okay, it's one, two, three, dot, 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 infinity, leave me alone. Um, but we could ask, what's the smallest number greater than zero? And it's very hard to say that it's not zero, but it isn't. And yet it's very hard to say, um, no, because 0.01, it's, it's easy enough to say 0.1, but... Are you saying 1 over infinitesimal? Yeah, it's an, well, 1 over infinity feels like 0. What's the difference between an infinitesimal and 0? If something is infinitely small, and if something is 0, existence is what's the... Existence, nice answer. Yeah, Kenneth. 1 over omega? 1 over omega, okay. Um, and how does that differ from 0? It, does it touch 0? So point, Euclid defines a point as something that has position but no dimension. So a point is just there. We talk about a line as being an infinite number of points. Can two points touch each other? Why not? There's a number of points between any two points. Can either of those points touch one of the points, touch the next point no, between it and the next point? No, there's, there's still an infinite number. Okay, so if two points can't touch each other, how could you ever have a line? If a when line point is point touch can touch the next line. dimension. How can a point, well, a point can touch a line, a point can be on a line. Can it touch a line and not be on it? No. No, <laughs> it can't. A point is one dimensional. No, a point is zero dimensional. Zero dimensional. <laughs> yeah, a line is one dimensional. So if a line is an infinite number of points, right, and we say and if it's a number line, this is zero, one, two, three, etc., and all points on the line stand for um, numbers, numbers between zero and one, for example, um, but those points don't touch each other, what's between them? 
more points. More points are between those points. And what are between the points that are between the points? More points. But they're not touching each other. Yeah. They're just touching what? Other points? No, those points. No, they're not touching those other points either. So what are, what are they doing? <laughs> These I are... They don't exist. They're dimensional. Okay. <laughs> they don't exist, so there's no such thing as a line. There's no such thing as space or time or God, and we don't exist. And, um, but they're still great, so we have to go on. <laughs> it's an unfortunate fact, but we still do have to go on. Okay, um, back to the Library of Babel. Here's the thing you could do. You could save a whole lot of space if instead of having 410-page books, you decided, look, every 410-page book is going to be in one of two possible situations. Either the second half of the book will be exactly the same as the first half of the book, letter for letter. So pages 1 to 205 would begin, let's say, to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That, that would be the beginning on page 1. On page 206, you would find a replica beginning to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind, and so on. A very, very, very tiny number of books will have their second half exactly the same as their first. If you cut every book in the Library of Babel in half and threw out part two, only kept the first 205 pages of every book in the Library of Babel, you would still have an accurate representation of the whole because in any book, in the very tiny number of books that repeated themselves exactly, all you would have to do to read that book, to read the 410-page book, is to read the 205-page book twice. And then, you, then it would be the same thing as reading the 410-page book, right? If the second half is exactly the same as the first. If it's not exactly the same as the first, if it's just another second half, one of the first halves of another book would be the second half of the book you'd started reading. So all you'd need is a catalog. It'd still be hard to find, but only half as hard to find as before. All you would need is a catalog telling you where to find part two. So you would read part one. At the end of part one, Buffy would die. You wouldn't know what to do. But the catalog would say, to see how Buffy comes back to life, go to gallery 476, um, shelf 14, and you can read what was originally the second half of this book, and which is now the first half of another book. So you could read the whole book. And now the library's down to half size. Yeah? But you could Keep doing you could keep doing that. I mean, you could just say there's one page. Yeah, you could easily get it down to one page, and now it would be one four hundred and tenth the original size. And now we're talking about something you know that's that's dealable with. It's now it's just starting to look like the U.S. budget deficit. But you, can, you can chop it as many times as you want, but you won't find meaning in it. I, I oh no, you would have to say you'd be transferring more Wait, than Eventually just get down to the letters. What meaning? Yeah. Not letters you go, you'll meaning. just get letters down to the letters, are, the alphabet. Yeah. It'll say go to this letter, then go to that letter, then go to that letter, then go to that letter. Yeah. It would take a while. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah. eventually you wait, could... Wait, wait, so just write the alphabet and we have the library. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's, what, that's the whole point. Yeah. Is that yeah. one single permutation of, of all the choices represents the meaning 
or the, the, the facts or whatever that exist in this library. So write the alphabet in binary, and the library can be represented by a 1 and a 0. Yeah. Yeah, Ken. The problem is that you're transferring all the information, as you're doing this, you're transferring information from the library into the catalog. So if you have only a 1 and a 0, then the catalog consists of, here's the book, and here's the string of 1 and zeros which represent that book. Mm -hmm. In which case, the catalog is just as large as the library was to begin with. Right. It's, it's sort of a, a data compression problem. <laughs> the catalog would be, therefore, as large as the original library, um, except that what you could do instead um, is come up with a catalog whenever you needed it, um, simply by flipping coins, getting yourself ones and zeros, and when um, through, a, through flipping coins by getting yourselves ones and zeros, you got a catalog, you could see whether that made sense as it gave you instructions for how to flip ones and zeros. Now, in fact, what you're doing is, um, we can take that a little farther and say, what you're doing is you're, is you're transferring space into time, which is something that, that the librarian is all, already thinking about, that is that he's old. Um, you've probably heard the old thought experiment that if you give six monkeys an infinite number of time, they'll type out all of Shakespeare, um, just randomly. Specifically. Well, that's how it's always told. But um, they'll type out, by the time they've typed out all of Shakespeare, they probably will have typed out half of all the other works of literature. David that, Ives wrote that. Sorry? David Ives wrote the one act about that called Words, Words, Words. Yes, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, but it would take them a long time. So the library takes up a huge amount of space, but it's very, very easy to shift that space into time and just say, if you just randomly, um, if, a, if a random letter generator generated letters randomly, if you waited long enough, it would generate every book in the Library of Babel. Um, as well as the catalog, um, that ca you could put that catalog slightly differently, which is to say um, the book that you want to read, the first letter of that book was generated on January 13th, 1996, and the last letter of that book was generated on December 14th, um, 2092, let's say. Um, and then that's one of the things that would be generated maybe many millions of years later, but you could then go back and read um, what was generated at that point, especially if you had a pseudo-random number generator so you could always um, reproduce from any given time. Yeah? As long as the pseudo-random number generator was such that it would actually produce all of the permutations. Yeah, which, yeah, which is part of the problem of being a pseudo-random. Right. Nevertheless, there are a lot of problems with this, and this isn't the hardest one <laughs> well, to solve. What I was going to say is that perhaps if the library of fable was a created object, and not just like this is the way that this universe originated, then perhaps the way it was created initially was somebody just started a random number generator going and, and attached it to a printing press. And but also used a sieve to make sure that, that no two books were the same. Right. Yeah. Just compared to the existing catalog. Right. Yeah, so it would have to have a representation of all the books in order not to, yeah, it would be a pain. <laughs> you could do it, but it would well, be a pain. Yeah, any method to create such a gigantic anything would be rather difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
I was just that we don't actually know that no books are the same. I mean, the, the author speculates. That's true. We have, we have already determined that there are so many books that, you know, maybe there's ten copies of each one, but there's so many all around it that that you would never would you know. know. Yeah, that's right. Just as you don't know that you don't have a double, that there isn't someone with exactly your DNA somewhere else in the world, even though you're not an identical twin. Um, and even, you know, um, most likely if you were a fraternal twin, your fraternal twin would be your double. It'd still be incredibly unlikely, but uh, more likely than anyone else. Yeah? Here's the thing, though. If there's so much chaos and, like, and infiniteness and finiteness all mixed up and going around, who's to say that a kid doesn't walk into this library, pulls off, pull out two books, and those books be exactly the same? Or pull out one book and that book be the single key that explains all yeah. meaning or whatnot? There's yeah, no one's to say, but exactly. but I wouldn't bet on it. But you, you couldn't bet on anything, which means that you could bet on that as much as you could bet on any other situation occurring. You could bet against yeah. it. Yeah. It's like the chaos of it. But look, but the point is, again, to take this as an allegory of real life, all our lives are bets. Everything we do is a bet. Um, you walk into this room betting without thinking that you're betting, but betting that um, there's not going to be a tremendous earthquake which will swallow us up in the next 15 seconds. Mm, nervous. Um, and the likelihood that such a thing will happen is minuscule, but not zero. Um, and so the same with the Library of Babel. Uh, the reason people buy lottery tickets is it seems to them more likely that um, out of however many numbers, 48 numbers, they'll be able to pick um, the six that are winning, than that they'll be hit by lightning as they um, step into the lottery ticket store. But in fact, it's more likely they'll be hit by light lightning. So it's partly a question of how you describe a situation. Um, people will um, get the odds wrong if the situation is described in a vivid way the way the Library of Babel is. Maybe it's this book. I think that if you were to look at the Library of Babel, the, the likelihood that he would ever have found the books he claims to, found, to have found is almost zero. Um, the one, O Time Thy Pyramids, and the two titles that he found and so on, he wouldn't have found those. There's just too much noise to look for that kind of signal. Um, yeah? Yeah. But it could. It could. Yeah, and it, it might be in the wrong language. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just, I just want to point out, like, I think there's two things that we, that we need to keep in mind. That there isn't, a, like, a metaphysical question, like, what is there that exists? If all knowledge exists, that's one problem that we have to solve. Whatever it is for knowledge to exist, if we're going to assume that knowledge existing in these books is knowledge existing, then that's fine, but there's also epistemological question, which is how could we know what what um, what it would mean for knowledge to exist, where the knowledge exists, and there are two distinct questions. Yeah. And if we start to conflate them, then we're not going to get the answer to either of them. So it might be enough to just say, let's, you know, everything that is knowable exists. And that that is in itself a point of contention, but if we just allow for that, then we can go a little further and ask the epistemological question, how can we know? I mean, we may not have an answer to that, but yeah. we need to keep them separate. And I think that's um, an 
once the child finds the one book, then you have to answer the question, what does that even mean? What's the knowledge within that book? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's the question, does that book exist? And the answer seems to be yes. And then the question is, how could we know? And we may not have well, one place this comes up in the story, if you have, um, did you all do it on the internet? Mm -hmm. Even though this book of Borges' short stories is like the best book ever? Yes. All right, good. Um, one place to look at the very end of the story, just, um, just to see what Borges is saying, is um, a number N, this is a parenthesis in the third to last paragraph. A number N of the possible languages employ the same vocabulary. So you have a bunch of possible languages and they employ the same vocabulary. Um, what he seems to mean by that is something that a group of French um, poets and writers called Uli Po, do people know who they are? Has anyone heard of them? So Uli Po stands for de la littérature potentielle, or workshop for potential literature. Um, the most famous book ever produced by a member of Uli Po is a book called La Disparation. Um, in English translation, it's translated as a void, two words, not avoid, like don't read, but a void. Um, in French, a more literal translation of the French would be The Disappearance. It's a mystery novel. It came out in the early 70s. Um, it got really good reviews. Some people found it just a little bit too postmodern for them um, in its vocabulary, but still really cool. Um, and it's about something, what's postmodernish about it is that something disappears in this novel that the detective is trying to find. His name is Anton Voyle, V-O-Y-L. Um, and he's, which is almost the French word for vowel, V-O-Y-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, um, but isn't. Um, anyhow, he's trying to find this thing that everyone is notices gone, but they can't quite say what it is. Um, all sorts of things happen. The book gets well reviewed. Um, when it first comes out, none of the reviewers notice that the book, and this is harder to do in French than in English, does not contain the letter E. It was translated as a void because the English translator couldn't call it the disappearance because it would contain the letter E in the title. Um, so it's translated into English also without the letter E. Um, and so what the Ulipo people do is um, they give themselves insane constraints to write under give themselves rules that they will not violate, and then they do it. The same guy who wrote La Disparation, his name is Georges Perec, so actually the letter E appeared in his name on the title page, but that was it. Um, wrote another book, uh, excuse me, wrote an um, essay on palindromes. Do people know what a palindrome is? What's the essay of palindrome? The essay is 5,000 words long. You only need the first 2,500. Yes. Yeah. So it's a 5,000-word-long palindrome. Um, also, by the end, it must get really weird. Yeah, it does, but it makes sense. It, it makes sense in the end? Yeah. Everything's yeah. a word? <laughs> yeah, it all makes sense. So the Ulipo people um, are, have been collecting. Do you, do you know, if you've taken French, what a, what a um, faux ami is? A false friend in French language. So you're trying, you're learning French, and one of the things that makes French seem an attractive language to learn 
is that a lot of words look the same in French as in English, like nation or nation, etc. Um, but a faux or a false friend is a word that looks the same in French or English, but is not. So if you come into an American elementary school and you see this word on the board, you will um, think, oh, they're learning the definite article. If you go into a French elementary school and you see that word on the board and it's not an English class, what are they talking about? Tea. tea. That is the drink tea. So what the Ulipo people are trying to do, this is sort of a, a decades-long project, is write a text that an English or American reader would pick up and read, and it would make perfect sense and be interesting in English. And a French reader would pick up and read, and it would make perfect sense in French. It would just have a lot more to do with tea. But it would, make a, it would have a lot more to do with tea, and it wouldn't say the same thing in French and English. It would say completely different things. So, there's a few phrases here and there. Um, who, what else would you do with your life if you could do that? I mean, really? What's the point? What are you majoring in? Okay, well, just one second a minute. So here is, Borges is actually somewhat anticipating that. I'll tell you one other, the other very famous Uli Po text, and there, there are a bunch of them, but another very famous one is a book called 10 to the 14th Sonnets, that is say 100 million billion sonnets. You can find an English translation on the web if you go to uh, bevro.info, B-E-V-R-O-W-E dot info. Um, what the original writer did, um, Raymond Queneau, um, if you've seen the movie Zazie dans le Metro, he was the person who wrote the book that movie's based on. Um, great, 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 great movie. Great, 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 great book. Um, what he did in the early 60s was he wrote 10 first lines of a sonnet, followed by 10 second lines of a sonnet, followed by 10 third lines of a sonnet all the way to the 14th line, such that if you took any first line and any second line and any third line and any fourth line up through all 14 lines, you would get a sonnet that made sense and that rhymed A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, um, C, D, E, C, D, E. That means he needed 40 A rhymes, and there are only 26 letters in the alphabet, but luckily we can do things like um, dead rhymes not only with bed, but with bread and with bled. Um, so he had 40 A rhymes and 40 B rhymes and 20 C, 20 D, and 20 E rhymes in order to be able to do that. So any first line goes to any second line, goes to any third line, and you get a sonnet that makes sense. If you go to bevro.info, you can get random sonnets. And if you get a random sonnet, you can be darn sure that no one in the history of the universe has read that sonnet before, 
and in fact that no one in the history of the universe will read that sonnet again. You can be the one reader, not even the writer will have read that sonnet. You can be the one reader of that sonnet. So that's a kind of real world. If you're asking what's the point, he made a lot of money and it's a kind of real world <laughs> equivalent to the Library of Babel. And so what else really is there? Yeah. Well, what, what's the sonnet? What is their given sonnet about? Each sonnet is about something different, and I can only tell you what 30 or 40 of them are about. One of them is about a gaucho. One of them is about a gaucho, a depressed gaucho, I can tell you that. Really, a depressed gaucho. It's, well, find, see for yourself. <laughs> you, can have an, you can have a literary experience that's unique and that no one else except God will have. Um, <laughs> Kenneth. Yeah. So, um, so this is it's essentially um, this, the 10, uh, 10 to the 14 sonnets is like uh, a micro uh, library of Babel. Yeah. Um, except the atomic units are the, the different... The, the sonnet lines. The different lines. The yeah. And the lines are in order. That is to say, there's no, there's no possibility of a first line in one sonnet being the, third, being the fourth line of another sonnet. Um, he's careful about that. Um, so it's not that you can mix and match. It's not a circular um, uh, uh, book. When it first came out, he cut the pages. The original editions are very expensive because what you essentially have are 10 pages that are cut into 14 slips so that you can therefore mix any first line with any second and so on. Much easier to do on the computer. You just get grids of sonnets. At any rate, so here's this parentheses. A number n of the possible languages employ the same vocabulary. That would be like the and te. Um, in some of them, the symbol, notice he emphasizes, he italicizes symbol. In some of them, the symbol library possesses the correct definition everlasting, ubiquitous system of hexagonal galleries. That, of course, is not the correct definition in our world, but we stipulate for his world that it is. In some of them, the symbol library possesses the correct definition, everlasting, ubiquitous system of hexagonal libraries. And I think this speaks to what Jennifer was bringing up. Um, while a library, the thing, is a loaf of bread, or a pyramid, or something else. So that in some books in the library, you will find a dictionary that says library, everlasting ubiquitous system of hexagonal galleries. And that will be a true definition, except in that language, the word library will mean loaf of bread, and everlasting ubiquitous system of hexagonal galleries will mean something like um, baked, yeasty, flowery, um, um, comestible. And again, we wouldn't no. Yeah. Um, maybe something explains to me because I don't get this. What's with the obsession of with hexagons in the library? Um, beehives. Uh, Cells. Kind of, they're they're the they're. Okay. No, it's a way of pack. It's a way of, of pa It's the it's the packing three dimensional figures densely. The reason that bee that cells in beehives are hexagonal is that's the most efficient use of space. Um, There's no more efficient use of space than hexagons. No. It's hexagons. Yes. Okay. It's hexagons, man. You know, if you run for office, that should be your bumper sticker. It's hexagons. Okay. And people will be curious at any rate. Yeah. So my first thought um, is, will we? Have, is there anyone or any way to know a language that makes it 
make more sense. But then I think the continuation of that, that question is, is there a way that humans or consciousness will ever expand far enough that we can make meaning out of anything? Well, so one of the things that he's anticipating here is an argument about real world language, um, which is that we can never be sure that we're speaking the same language as the people we're speaking to. The Uli Po idea of the versus te is an obvious version of that. Um, a version that I like um, just in English is, and some, I think some of you know, have heard me ask this before, but how many of you know what the word livid means? I mean, if you, if you read the word livid in a, in a, a, on a, pa in a newspaper or something, um, you have a basic sense of what it means. You know, Romney was livid with rage when Obama demanded that he um, show his tax returns again. And how many of you know it means a color? Raise them high, raise them high. How many of you suspected it might mean a color? Okay, so for those of you who know it means a color, for those of you who all now know it means a color, um, if someone is livid with rage, do they turn red? How many think they turn red? And how many of, the, how many of you think they become pale? So the answer is it's that they become pale. Livid is something that if you go to med school, you will learn what lividity is. And it's sort of when blood, if you press down on, um, on tissue and the blood doesn't return, it stays pale. Um, that's lividity and it's, it's a symptom. Um, so you can live your entire life talking to your family. And your sister can say, dad was livid with rage. And you and your sister can think you know what that meant for your entire lifetime. But your sister can think it meant red and you can think it meant pale. And you would never know that you had different meanings for that same word. Expand that to a realm of high unlikelihood. And this is true of all our conversations with other people. I am actually explaining the principles of geology to you, but the vocabulary as you're interpreting it seem to be about fictional stories by an Argentine writer. Because when I say Borges, what I actually mean is um, plate tectonics. But what you think I mean is trippy, tricky fiction from the 1940s. Now, how would you know? How could you ever know that that wasn't the case? Only probabilistically, but not definitely. Amanda first, then Kenneth. Well, there was an author who I, I know who it was. I'm just really blanking on the name right now, who um, said that we're all trapped by language because we can never you know, fully understand each other, because we can only understand language as we perceive it and how we interpret it in our own minds and in our writing. But somebody else can use the exact same language and interpret it in an entirely different way. So yeah. therefore, we can never understand each other. Yeah. And not only that, but we could never um, even know that we were roughly on the same page. Um, we assume we are. We have faith that we are, but we can't know it. Um, Kenneth, and yeah. I just was thinking, you know, your, your entire explanation of how what you're talking about is actually geology itself is just talking about geology. In no, it's actually talking about Borges. By geology, I meant Borges. Oh, so in the, so in the alternate universe geology lecture, then you were talking about how you were talking about geology, but, 
but you, but everyone thought that you were talking about four. Exactly. <laughs> and so that maps perfectly between the two. Well, why is it ultimate universe? It's this universe. Too. Yeah, it's this universe too, which is the ultimate. Oh, I, I was just sort of distinguishing between the two by saying in, in your mental universe where you say Borges and mean the thing that I mean when I say geology. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? I do, I think. And that would be the point. Yeah, yeah. I'm just I'm remembering in one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books, uh, President of the Galaxy, turns, uh, the actual runner of the galaxy, turns out he's insane. And people come and ask him questions like once a month on what they should do and stuff. And at one point he starts thinking, hmm, I wonder if they're actually singing to my cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I was going to say to kind of, I guess, answer your, your question, or, or I guess not even question, but you know, speculation, that I think in a kind of realistic way, well, that's why we have these kinds of things set up where you know, when everyone goes to elementary school, they're taught kind of the same definitions to try to combat that. Yeah. And so it's not perfect. I mean, like, I had a different definition of living than someone else, but that's why we have these systems set up, because that is a real, like, a, a real-world problem. It's not just a, you know, theoretical thing. Yeah, and in fact, you know, if you look at, there's, there's a great book, which I highly recommend to you, called, um, I guess it's called Words at Play. Um, but one thing that the writer of the book does um, is he gives you, it, it, the writer is a guy named John Cole, I think, something Cole. Um, he gives you a set of 26 words that are self-antonyms, each for a different letter of the alphabet. So you all probably know that cleave is a self-antonym, that you cleave to the Lord your God, but you can also be cleaved away from something. A, what does a cleaver do? Does a cleaver make you cleave to something or does it separate? Um, but, but you can do one for every letter of the alphabet. Um, when you dust a surface, if you're a cop, you're putting dust on it looking for fingerprints. If you are um, cleaning your desk, you're removing dust from it. Um, so words will often turn into meaning their opposites. And that's partly because people hear a context, but they think the opposite is being said from what's actually being said. This is a real world issue. Yeah, one more comment. Um, I think to the point of being trapped by language and or having that single book that may have the ultimate truth is that it can't matter and it doesn't matter because there's no way around it. And perhaps what he's saying is if you do continuously search for that one correct answer, you're going to waste your life away. And it's about... Yeah. And that would be the existential, existentialist point. I think that's exactly right. Um, good place to end. Read um, the chapter from Early Greek Philosophy, but bring back um, the Borges. We'll look a little bit at the Aleph and bring back the Leonardo quote, which we'll start with. You can read it. It'll take you a minute, but we'll talk about it. Uh, but I'll read it aloud, and we'll talk about it on um, Wednesday. Um, I'm colorblind, so I have to give you this. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.